So this morning I'll preach on our uh, core value of missions, and I'll be preaching from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. So I'll encourage you to turn in your copy of God's word there, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. For the note takers among us, the title of today's sermon would then be missions, or we might say God's heart for missions. God's heart for missions. We usually print the core value on the back of the bulletin for you, and the one that's printed there is for next week. So allow me uh, to begin by reading uh, from our website, uh, our core value of mission, and then I will read God's word from Revelation 7. Here's what our statement, our core value statement on mission is. As a covenant family, we join God's mission to share the gospel with others, both in word and deed. All Christians are called to share the hope of Jesus Christ with others. And the church must remain committed to sending missionaries and supporting mission work throughout all of God's kingdom here on earth. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word from Revelation chapter seven, beginning in verse nine. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God and they said, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us, for preserving, sustaining it through the ages that we might have it today. Lord, as we've heard it read in a language familiar to us, we pray, Lord, now as we come to the preaching of the word that you would grant to us more than just physical hearing, physical understanding. Would you, by your Holy Spirit at work in us, grant to us spiritual hearing and spiritual understanding. Oh God, open our eyes to behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us for righteousness sake. Oh God, make us more like Jesus. Lord, we pray for our brother, Elder Mario Fuelin. We pray for him that you would strengthen his body this day. Thank you for his heart for you. Thank you, Lord, for the work he did this week to preach the word. Pray that you would restore him to full health. And we look forward to hearing him next week. And so now, Lord, as I come to preach your word, would you help me, your servant, protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. It's become popular these days to open a television show with kind of this shocking scene, like one of the lead characters, someone that everyone's endeared to, right? Is there lying on the ground, they've suffered maybe a gunshot wound, or perhaps it's one of the other beloved characters being rushed to the hospital. They've experienced some sort of trauma. You don't even know what's going on. 
the scene draws you in. You're like, wait, what? What happened? Did I miss, did I miss last week's episode? What's going on here? And just as you begin to despair of the circumstances unfolding before you, what happens? The screen goes blank, right? And then some words appear, 10 hours before, right? Or one day before. What happens then? You get whisked back into history, right? You spend the next hour or so watching events unfold and then all your questions are answered. It gives you insight to how this character wound up in the predicament that they're in. And then finally you see the resolution of it all. Well, what's happening there is that the final scene becomes the opening scene, but yet it never stops being the final scene. The final scene becomes the opening scene, yet all the while it still remains unchanged. It is the final scene. As we turn to Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 12, to consider this core value of mission this morning, I want you to know that what we see here on this page before us is a final scene in God's unfolding plan for this world. But in every way, this is also an opening scene. For this very scene, this picture of a, a great multitude that no one could number, a multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, this multitude standing before the throne, this scene was known to God from the very beginning. Before God ever created the world, this scene was before him. And the picture that it paints for us helps us to comprehend exactly just what God's heart for mission truly is. It also helps us to see what our heart for missions should be. So having read from these last pages of scripture, we're gonna begin this morning by turning our minds to the very first pages of the scriptures. I want us to see first how God's heart for missions is rooted in creation. Those of you taking notes, this is our first of three points this morning. God's heart for missions is rooted in creation. In Genesis chapters one and two, we have the account of how God created the world and everything in it, how God created the world out of nothing. And as we think about the account of creation from what you know as you think about it, you must keep a very important, some would say vital truth first and foremost in your mind. And that is this, that from all eternity, God has always existed. Before Genesis 1-1, God was, he always is. God is eternal. He's always existed as the one God, as we say in Christianity, the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always experienced perfect love and fellowship within and among his persons. When he created the world, God created the world out of a fullness of that love, out of an overflow of that love. He did not create the world out of any sense of lack. God created the world for his glory. God created the world for his glory. 
And he especially made mankind. The Bible tells us he made man male and female. He made them in his image. Why? So that they might reflect his glory. So they might experience the same fellowship that he had always enjoyed amongst himself so that they might reflect his glory. Remember, Jesus prayed for this for his disciples in John 17. As Jesus is praying, he wants his people to experience the same fellowship that he had experienced with the Father before the world was created. God wants us to experience fellowship. He wants us to worship him. He's made us for his glory. Mankind was made for intimate and eternal fellowship with God. Mankind was made to worship God in all his glory because he is glorious. And if we get our minds working this morning, we would know that in some measure, this is what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden, in some measure. There for a time, at least, they had fellowship with God that was unhindered by the effects of sin. Again, God had created them with a purpose in his heart. He created them to bring glory to himself. As I've already said, God didn't do this because his glory was diminished in some way or because he needed some way to be more glorious than he already was. Out of grace, God created mankind to display his glory. God wanted Adam and Eve and all those who came from them to sing the words that would be later recorded in Psalm 96, seven through nine. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. God created mankind. He created us so that his glory might be known and praised. So what's at the heart of God's heart for missions? People, people, people specially created to know his glory. People specially created to praise his glory. People specially created to magnify his glory throughout all the earth. Rooted in creation itself is God's passion to raise up a people for himself that will worship him in spirit and in truth. And what do we see happening in Revelation chapter seven? What did we see? Remember, for those of you who sat through that really long two-year journey we took to the book of Revelation, it's a picture book, right? Not a puzzle book. But what picture do we see? All kinds of people from all kinds of nations, made up of all kinds of tribes and languages, doing what? Worshiping, worshiping God, hailing his glory in one voice. It's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful scene. But to keep our thinking caps on, it reveals another scene, a tragic scene. For the events that bring us to these actual people standing before that throne reveal God's heart for missions in a different way. So that brings us to our second point this morning. If you're taking notes, God's heart for missions is revealed in redemptive history. God's heart for missions is revealed 
and redemptive history. Now, the fact that I use that qualifying word redemptive in reference to history points to the reality that the way it was early on in the garden is not how it has always been. For the path from garden to glory is not a straight line. It takes many twists and many turns. And all the while, this path has always led to and flowed from the same point. And that point is a person, the same person that we see here in Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Who's that? The Lamb of God, Jesus the Christ. You may not be aware of this, but we actually first meet this lamb in Genesis 3. We meet this lamb in Genesis 3 following the fall of mankind into sin. Remember the serpent, Satan himself, had deceived Adam and Eve into eating fruit from the forbidden tree, and therefore sin and death had been ushered into the world. But just before the Lord mercifully cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, he actually preaches the gospel. God speaks the first redeeming gospel promise to Satan. You can look there if you want, Genesis 3.15. God tells Satan that he will place enmity, enmity, excuse me, that's murderous hatred. God will place enmity between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. And that while Satan may bruise the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would crush his head. That's gospel. That is the gospel. It's the first gospel proclamation. And with that proclamation right there in Genesis 3.15, the battle lines of history are drawn. On one side is the woman with her seed. And on the other is Satan and his seed. On one side is faith and faithfulness. And on the other is disbelief and unfaithfulness. And you see this battle play out over the course of the entire Old Testament. Throughout its history, where does it begin? Cain and Abel, it begins right there. It continues through the line of Adam's son, Seth, and even up to Noah. For even when sin and its effects become saturated in the people of the earth, what does God do? He chooses to preserve mankind through Noah. He chooses to preserve the gospel promise through Noah and the covenant that he makes with him. Yet even after Noah, what happened? Sin still reigned, did it not? You can turn to Genesis 11 and see it clearly there at the Tower of Babel. Here, the people of God rebelled from what they were created to do. What were they supposed to do? What were we created to, to do? To worship God, to make his name great, to glorify him. But what did they do? What does 11.4 tell us? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They chose to glorify themselves rather than glorify God. So God acted once again. And what does he do? He disperses the people over the face of all the earth. He confuses the language of the peoples so that they begin to speak in multiple languages. And it's against this backdrop. It's against that backdrop that we are introduced to one of the first missionaries in Genesis chapter 12. Abram, or Abraham. We're told that the Lord suddenly appears to him and calls him to go. 
to go from his land and his kindred and his father's house, to leave there and go to a new land, a land that God would show to him. And with that call to go came a promise. God said to him, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Bible tells us that Abraham went. He went believing in God's promise. But as he went, something was wrong. He yet remained childless. And so he asked God how this great promise would come to pass. And in Genesis 15, five, God says, go outside and look toward heaven. I want you to number the stars if you can, for that will be the number of your offspring. And what are we told? Abraham believed. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. He had faith. And the Lord fulfilled his promise to Abraham. The Lord allowed Abraham to experience his blessing. He gave him the land that he had pledged. And what else did he give him? A son, Isaac, the son whom he had promised. It's from here that God's great promise to Abraham continues to develop. It's repeated to Isaac in Genesis 26, 4. It's repeated to Isaac's son, Jacob, in Genesis 28, 14. The number of God's people continues to grow through the generations so that at the time of the captivity in Egypt, there were a multitude of them. Following the exodus, the multitude leaves, right? And they're constituted as a nation. And eventually they're granted kings to reign over them. And one of those kings, Solomon, even says of Israel in 1 Kings 3.8, that Israel is a people too many to be numbered are counted because of their multitude. So the people are growing in number. But what else were they growing in? rebellion, sinfulness. From the divided kingdom of Solomon's day until the time of exile in Babylon, God's people continue to turn their backs on him. God is faithful, but the people remained unfaithful. They failed to keep his covenant. And so they keep cursing instead of blessing upon their head. But the Lord did not forsake them because he is faithful. God was always at work to preserve his people. And so there always remained some whom we refer to as the remnant, those who were faithful to God and to his promises. So the Lord continued to renew his promise that he made to Abraham. In fact, you can see it again in Hosea chapter one, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, that which cannot be measured or numbered. Throughout this history of God's people, there also remained another promise, the promise of a seed of the woman given in Genesis 3.15. There's a big spotlight on Abraham, but they hadn't forgotten the other promise. Was it Isaac? Was it Jacob? Was it whoever that came next? Was it David? No. There's a gospel warrior on the way. There's a gospel warrior who's revealed to the people of Israel through the prophets to be the one who is coming, the promised one, the Messiah, the one who would be the savior of God's people. 
And we finally meet this Messiah. We finally meet him in the very first chapter, right? The very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the new covenant or the New Testament. How does it begin in Matthew 1.1? Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham, the true seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham in whom all the nations would be blessed arrives on the scene and he stands in Israel's place. He fulfills the covenant of works that they were unable to fulfill. He fulfills righteousness where they couldn't. And then he takes on their sin and shame as the one true sacrificial lamb of God who truly rescues people from their sin. This gospel warrior, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, but death could not hold victory over him. So he rose and he is risen triumphantly from the grave. And there on the cross, he dealt the crushing blow to the serpent's head. Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, is the focus of redemptive history in which all prior events point to and from which all following events flow. Jesus, at the cross, we see God bringing to fulfillment the great purpose for which he had created the world in the first place, to secure access to his heavenly throne for all those whom he had made and chosen for his glory, for all those who are redeemed by the blood of the lamb can now stand before the throne of God, can come there freely and boldly and worship him in spirit and in truth. And you're like, Pastor Dan, that was quite a seminary class you just taught. You just swept through the entire Old Testament. Amen, I wanted to do that. I wanted you to see that it's one story. It's the story of Jesus. The whole Bible is one story. The focus of redemptive history is Jesus. And God's heart for missions is revealed there. We see God's purpose from the very beginning to have a multitude of people gathered before him and the lamb in worship, just as we see in Revelation 7. This multitude, it was promised to Abraham it was secured by the blood of Jesus and preserved for the ages by gospel grace and gospel mercy that was first promised in the garden. We can most surely say what God promises to do, he does. He did. He will. All right. So now that our heads are spinning a little bit, we've seen that God's heart for missions is rooted in creation and revealed in redemptive history, now I want us to see that God's heart for missions will be fully realized in eternity. That's our third and final point. God's heart for missions will be fully realized in eternity. From the time that God made his promise to Abraham, he had always purposed to include, and it's quoted there, all the families of the earth. All the families of the earth. That was a promise made to Abraham. Though for a certain time in history, God's redemptive focus was on the people of the historical nation of Israel, God always, he was always in pursuit 
of all the families of the earth. You can see it throughout the Old Testament, those few Gentiles that are welcomed in during Old Testament times. And we can see it in the promises given to the prophets, but it becomes crystal clear in the new covenant. It becomes crystal clear in the teachings of Jesus and in the historical events of the New Testament. You see, seminal in this redemptive historical turning point is the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples just before his ascension in Acts chapter one. Jesus had already told them, go into all the world, right? And make disciples, go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus had prepared them for the mission ahead. And if you open the book of Acts and you read chapter one, you're thinking these guys are ready to do it, right? But instead, as the time come for Jesus' ascension, what do they ask him? Is now the time you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time you're gonna go back to Jerusalem and sit on the throne there? What does Jesus say to them? What does he say in Acts 1.8? He puts the focus on power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The king, I have a commission for you. You will be my witnesses. That wasn't just spoken to the 11 gathered there. That's spoken for the church. We are his witnesses. See, Jesus is sending his church to the ends of the earth with good news good news of salvation. And you know what? They actually listened. They actually listened, whether it be Matthew who went to Ethiopia, what is now Ethiopia, or Thomas who went to what is now known as India, to Paul who called specifically, who was called specifically to take the gospel to the Gentiles throughout the Roman empire. God's heart for all the families of the earth is realized just as it was recorded in Ephesians 2.13. That's the story we see unfold. Those who were once far off are brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of the new covenant in Christ, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. All are one body in the lamb. People from every nation, people from all tribes and people from all languages are even to this day being reached with the gospel. Even today, new people, new languages, new tribes, new families are being welcomed into the family of God. God's heart for missions has never stopped beating. In fact, a right look of history can see God's heart's beat only grow louder and louder as the church through the centuries takes this call seriously and the church grows more zealous and fervent and strategic in its desire to see people from every nation bow down before King Jesus. And this heartbeat is gonna continue until the day we find ourselves experiencing the fullness of what we see here in Revelation 7. This is breathtakingly beautiful, absolutely glorious. What other superlatives can I come up with? This is wonderful. Our souls long for this, to join the throng that is already there and to be there when Christ returns. 
So I wanna wrap things up this morning by telling you a story. I wanna tell you a story of an old family friend named Gary. When I was young, Gary had a severe heart condition and he was told that he wouldn't live long unless he received a heart transplant. He had been on the wait list for a couple of years and doctors couldn't find a match. And so the outlook was grim. We had went to visit him there when things were really grim. And then suddenly one day, just about a week later, he got the call that a match had finally been found. So Gary and his family rushed from Southeastern Missouri all the way up to St. Louis, where he was given a new heart. He got the heart of a teenaged girl who had died in a car accident. Several months later, we went to visit Gary in his home. It was great to see him, right? He was now full of life and joy. He had recovered pretty well. Well, sometime during the conversation though, he turned to my brother and I, I think we were, I was 10, my brother was maybe 13 or 14. He turned to us and he said, hey kids, can you tell me something? Sure. What kind of TV shows do teenage girls like? What kind of, what kind of music do teenage girls listen to? My brother and I were like, ew, we don't know. I don't know, why, why are you asking us this? You know, my dad's got the dad thing. What? Why are you asking them that, you know? And so we're like, Gary, why are you asking this? This is what he said. Now, I'm, I don't know if I've got the quote right, but this is how it stuck with me for 35 plus years. I've been given this young girl's heart and I figure that as long as it is inside of me, I should keep it beating by letting it enjoy all those things that kept it beating strong while it was still inside of her. See, Gary got a new heart and he desired to keep that heart beating by exposing it to the things that had helped it beat so strong before. You know that as followers of Jesus, we've been given new hearts too. Our hearts of stone have been replaced with hearts of flesh that beat and pant after God. But you know what? They're beating to a new drumbeat to the drumbeat of God's passion for his glory and his passion for his people from his world to glorify his name forevermore. And that's why the church, that's why this church does missions. The church does missions because it is a missional church. The church does missions because it is on mission. We are witnesses we are on mission. Just as you cannot ask a cat to become a dog, you cannot ask a car to become a truck, so you cannot ask the church to be anything other than a mission church. The church has the heart of God beating inside of it. It will be even stronger and even louder when the church is embracing and doing what God has called it to do. But there's a reality that we're facing. And the reality is this, is that while God's heart for missions, I believe is abundantly clear in the scriptures and his passion for his people, there's much about it that is yet to be fully revealed to us. And think about it this morning, you're gathered here together. You realize there are families of the earth who have never heard the name of Jesus. They have no idea who Jesus is. 
never heard his name. Do you realize there are tribes and languages that have yet to hear the good news about Jesus because it has not yet been translated into their tongue and no one knows how to communicate it to them? Are you aware of that reality? There are many to be reached. So what does the church do? We respond. We cry out and ask God to help us. We march onward. We work to make God's glory known throughout all the earth until the very last day when Christ returns in all his glory. That's when the work is done, when Christ returns. But until then, we continue. We don't know how much longer we have to work. We don't know how many people there are yet to be reached. But we can know for certain that in eternity, the fullness of God's heart will be revealed to us. When we're there on that day and we see all those people from every tribe and tongue and nation, we'll realize this was God's purpose to save a people for himself, to glorify him for all eternity. So we as a church, what we're called to do is to march to the beat of that drum. We're called to march to that beat. We share the gospel in word and in deed with those who are apart from Christ. Some of you are called just to do that across the house. Some of you are called to do it across the marketplace, across the workroom, across the street, across the school. Some of you maybe even across the globe. We're called to share the gospel. We're called to share the good news about Jesus with others. We're called to serve in Jesus' name and to do it while pointing them to the true servant savior, Jesus Christ. And we're called to support those who take the gospel to far off places. We're called to support missions. One of the blessings of the American church is the resources we have to help fund the mission work to the very ends of the earth. And we should be active in doing that one of the greatest resources we can give is our prayers and our words of encouragement. So next week when Toshe and Jesse are here to tell us about the work they're doing in Macedonia, we surround them with our love. We surround them with our support. We encourage them in the good work that, we're, that they're doing. We celebrate what God is doing and we look for opportunity to celebrate it in others. That's my hope I think I speak on behalf of the session. It's our hope that we would do this more and more. It's great to see our church grow. It's even greater to see us grow in zeal and love for God and heart for missions. Amen and amen.